This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone, and thanks for listening. Do you often pull for the underdog, the little guy or girl that seemingly is so outmatched in a contest that it seems pointless even before the contest begins? Are you drawn to the difficult, the unrelenting, hard, almost impossible task, or even people? I am. Jerry is. Always have been. It seems I have been attempting the impossible my entire career. I started out serving as the executive director in a Skid Road mission in Seattle, Washington, working with the homeless, street people, winos, and lots of folks not doing so well in life. I loved it. I loved the people, their stories, and the few that I could help. I cherish. I worked for nine and a half years in the third world countries of East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, building the first schools and medical clinics in the islands of Lake Victoria. You will have to buy me a drink to hear those stories, but from building the first permanent buildings in 52 islands to riding in a boat with a cow, those stories last with me. Whether it was with Inos on the street or the poverty-stricken kids in the Bavuma Islands of East Africa, the job seemed impossible. But I can tell you about successes in each stop, men and women who turned their lives around, and kids, no matter how poor, who learned to read and escape poverty in some of the poorest countries of the world. The recipe, the prescription, the formula is always the same when you're tackling the impossible. You start by doing what is necessary, then what is possible, and before you know it, the impossible is something that you never dreamed was possible. It's happening right before your eyes. Two challenges that seem impossible are climate change and food insecurity. But I think we follow the same formula that St. Francis suggested and who knows what could happen. We might even discover that these two are linked together and solving one helps solve the other. Cheryl Kirschenbaum is back with us today to help us understand the link between food security and climate change and how we might accomplish the impossible and change the outcome of both of these seemingly impossible challenges. Jerry and Cheryl join me next on this edition of Food First Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. As promised, we are going to be blinded by science by Cheryl Kirschenbaum, a reoccurring guest to us. Cheryl, the executive director of Science Debate and so many more titles, but welcome back. Jerry, welcome Cheryl back to the show. 
You know what? I couldn't be more excited. We have always said that we've got to have information to make good decisions, that if we're going to solve a complicated problem like food insecurity, we can't just solve it from our guts. We have to have information. It has to be good information. We have to keep learning and keep evolving. And Cheryl, you are one of our favorite science information oriented people, and it's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for having me back. And you are two of my favorite people, human beings, I should say, and, and hosts. So this is a real treat for me. It's great to have you. Thanks for taking the time. And now let's dive straight into to an issue that I, I, I think we've talked a lot about on the show when you've been with us, but I want you to refresh our listeners and Jerry and I too, for that matter. Cheryl, can you link this this two great challenges two of the great challenges we're facing right now which is food insecurity and climate challenges climate change so to speak how do these two connect to one another they are directly related they're inherently part of the conversation about the other and so i work at the intersection of agriculture and climate uh how we produce food how we consume food how we waste food all of these play a huge role in the emissions we create, but also the opportunities we have to address climate change. So I like to say that um, food is the, is the victim, is the cause, and is the solution to climate change. Uh, it's, it's part of all of those pieces. Mm. And, and we can go into detail on how it all fits together, but, but broadly, absolutely related. So food is the victim, meaning our ability to produce food is affected by climate change. But food is also the cause, meaning the way we produce food is creating climate change. So food is on both sides of the equation. Well, and the solution. So if we change the ways that we produce food, if we change the way we think about where our food comes from, and what we see over and over in the survey we work we do at Michigan State University, about half of Americans don't know how food gets from the source to their plate. I mean, we are so far removed from the process. Less than 2% of Americans live on farms. So we have a situation where we all think we care about food. We all think we're foodies, but we're not really paying attention to the agricultural practices that sustain us. And, and then all the misinformation that goes into how we think about food really affects what gets served. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about climate change, I think we've done a really bad, and when I say we, I, I mean a lot of different people, right? But I mean in policy, in science, all the folks that are supposed to be so-called experts, and sometimes I have a really big problem with the term expert, but the folks who are supposed to know what we're talking about, when we speak to general audiences about climate issues, usually the take-home is something about, oh, it, it's getting warmer, or at this point, oh, storms are getting worse. But it's such a bigger story and it's inherently part of how we live and how we prepare for the future. Uh, when it comes to food, you know, we're starting to see areas of the world that we've, we've always been very dependent on producing, we call them bread baskets, producing massive amounts of grains, of soy, of legumes, of these very staple crops. They're starting to not do as well for a variety of reasons, but it's not just about warmer temperatures. It's about the transportation of uh, fertilizer and energy and water and all of these limited resources that are also tied to climate. So 
big picture, and I can go in a million different directions with this, so you'll have to excuse me. Uh, but big picture, you know, it's not just about warming temperatures. Climate change makes more extreme extremes. So uh, nastier storms, floods become worse, droughts become drier. Uh, all of these different things are in play, and that, of course, affects what we can grow and where we can grow it and how we can move it to different people around the world. So until now, through now, where famines do occur, and unfortunately they do, those are largely the result of distributional shortcomings. So we have enough food, but it's not reaching all the people who need to eat it. And we see that in, I mean, you got you see that day to day. Uh, in the future, we're worried about some of these areas we call breadbaskets failing, and suddenly they're not being enough food to go around. But as you know, I'm really focused on what are the solutions? Who are the people doing great work to make it so that's not the case in 10, 20, 30 years? And I see a lot of that every day in my own work with my colleagues, and that's why I'm optimistic that we can solve this, we can get there. So there's like 50 different directions this whole conversation <laughs> could go. They're all interesting and exciting. So, uh, you know, my brain is just whirling and I can't imagine anybody listening isn't going, oh my gosh, that, 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 oh, that too. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so, um, so let's, let's, let me focus on one piece of this. And I, and I really want to talk about farmers. You know, we have a lot of relationships with growers. We And growers are a really important part of the microcosm and macrocosm even of everything that we do. And so when you talk about some of these challenges with with both growing and distributing food, where are the growers in this conversation? What are, what are they saying? How are they responding to these challenges? It's a great question. Um, so I work with a lot of farmers and farm groups, uh, and a lot of them are really on board with wanting to be more efficient and less wasteful, wanting to make sure that they're, uh, whether they're in, in crops, whether they're in dairy, whether they're ranchers, making sure that, that their uh, commodity is sustained over time. So not something they have to worry about telling their kids they have to find a different means of making a living. Uh, they're really invested, and many of them, most of the folks I speak to, are thinking long-term, which is important. So, I, you know, a lot of people feel like climate is such a politicized issue, but we see people across the aisle working in practical ways on these issues, wanting to move towards solutions because, frankly, it's good for them, it's good for their families, it's good for business. Um, they're embracing things like precision agriculture a lot. We call it smart agriculture. There's a lot of names for it. But we have new technologies, drones are part of it, but there's other things too that monitor the soil, that monitor um, humidity, that monitor uh, sunlight and, and tell farmers, give them information about precisely how much fertilizer or water or you know different resources their specific crops need to grow so they're wasting less, they're more efficient. You know, they're a big part of the solution and I'm excited to be able to work with them and have these conversations. It seems like, Cheryl, the conversation about climate change has changed. I, I can remember years ago when, you know, it was like we were going through the, uh, the, the grief cycle. <laughs> you know, there was denial and, and, you know, then we progressed a little further until we're actually able to define reality and people are listening. And, and while there are still naysayers and, and people who are unbelievers or whatever, we find that there's always going to be an element of that. And certainly living through the pandemic, we found that to be true. But for me, I think that 
the conversation about climate change has changed. And that's exciting. So I've been working in this space for more than 20 years now um, from the policy side since about 2004, 2005, and uh, also looking at public attitudes on climate change. Now, in 2012, for the first time, we saw both a majority of Democrats and Republicans saying this is real, this is a problem. Not everyone's necessarily focused on what are we going to do about it, because we have different opinions on what climate adaptation looks like, climate mitigation looks like. Uh, but I do think, especially given what we've seen in the last five, 10 years with these these once in a century, once in a thousand year storms that seem to be happening multiple times a year, we know that something's different, no matter what the language we use to describe it is. Mm -hmm. um, and again, unfortunately, climate change, global warming became such a politicized term that politicians wouldn't even mention up until around the 2018-2020-ish elections uh, because it was considered too partisan. You know, you'd lose you'd lose right. support for it. But in 2020, with polling, we saw that actually it was it was a very top priority for voters in both parties, which was very different. But that's not to say that legislators necessarily feel that way. I think some of the biggest pushback we see is at the policy, the policymaking level, not necessarily the, the layperson level or the expert level, the scientist level. It's it's mainly coming from one space. I see it as the same way that the food security conversation has has matured, so to speak. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but I think of it like this: that that you're on, you're as a science communicator extraordinaire, you're right at the forefront of this conversation. The way Jerry and I like to be, think of ourselves at least, in regard to food security. Uh, and you know, the, the the thing that comes to my mind is that some people, some people plant, some people water, and some people reap. And I might not be here for the harvest, but I know that I've either planted or I've watered in order for this conversation to take root and really grow into something that makes a difference in the life of people as well as in the planet. So let me stop right there with, with uh, planting, watering, and reaping. And we're going to come back with Cheryl Kirschenbaum. She is the executive director for Science Debate. She is an academic specialist at Michigan State University, and she's our friend and colleague and should be an even more regular guest on this show. She's back with Jerry and I in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. We're back with Cheryl Kirschenbaum, a science communicator. I said this in the last segment, extraordinaire. And I mean that, Cheryl. It's really true. And I want everybody to know that your Twitter game is par excellence. I mean, it is awesome. And your Twitter handle is at Cheryl underscore, and Cheryl is spelled S-H-E-R-I-L, and then an underscore. And I'm telling you folks, go there, follow her. You will be enlightened. You will be inspired. You will be thrilled with all that she puts there because it's, it's, it's positive and it's candid at the same time. So 
There's my plug for your Twitter game. That's very kind. I feel like I have a lot to live up to now, but uh, usually it's just whatever's running through my head at that moment and taking a break from something else I'm doing. So thank you. You know, when we when we look at the trajectory of how conversations change and what is it that changes conversations and <clears throat> and how does that happen? And even when you see some of the evidence, Cheryl, that you were talking about in terms of, you know, once in a in a millennia storm happening three times in one year and people still go, ah, you know what? Back when the dinosaurs were here, it looked like this, you know what I mean? And, and you know, people have just enough information to convince themselves they don't have anything to worry about or there's nothing that they should do. And there's another tendency, too, to say, well, yeah, we do this, but, you know, if we're the only ones that do it, then we bear all the cost and, and you know, and that's not fair. And, you know, you have all these reasons that people have some reasons like if you make a decision and it costs jobs and it and it and someone's livelihood is affected you you obviously have to be worried about the the consequences of the policy decisions that we make i think that the the practice in in the public eye of using just enough information to make the point that makes you popular or that proves what you think for the moment is one of the things that makes a complicated issue challenging. And, and I know that we've said many times on our show, when you have a complex problem and you want a simple solution, you are always going to make a mistake. You, you, you can't have simple solutions to complex problems. It just doesn't work that way. And so getting people to talk together, to work together, to, to you know let go of maybe what's easy or what's simple and really focus on what's real and the steps that have to be taken and, and what are the cost benefits of those steps and, and how do you practically work toward the positive end for everybody that's a huge challenge, and I, and, and, I, and I put it that way because, Cheryl, I think one of the things that you do really well is put things in that light, in that light of let's not get distracted by our opinions and let's not get distracted about what we want to believe, but really let's focus on solving the issues in front of us that are really obvious and clearly need to be solved. And when you start looking at what growers can do that not only makes their business better and cheaper and easier to run, and it helps climate. So let's make this about why this is good for growers, not whether or not you believe climate change is a problem. I, I really think that's refreshing and helpful, and it's the kind of approaches that I think make good policy. So, so there's my you know, long, long you know, kind of response to what you just said, but, but, uh, but I really appreciate what you're trying to do here. And I, and I would like to hear from you some of the things that you're working on now along those lines to get some of these policies moving in the right direction. Well, thank you for that. And I also completely agree with you in terms of how information moves. And I just love to step back for a minute and talk about some of that too, because I think it's such a multi-layered problem, right? We have a community of people that study what's going on who haven't been trained to be communicators. They haven't had media training. If you saw that movie, Don't Look Up recently, they kept talking, they kept looking at the scientists and going, that guy needs media training. That woman needs media training. I mean, it's so true. We're taught in the science community and I've now, I'm now in my second round of grad school. So uh, we're not trained to tell stories. We're not trained to talk about things in a real way. We're trained to go through this rigorous peer review process 
that we only talk to each other about and then publish in these very specific journals that most folks have no access to, leaving the actual narrative to someone else like a podcast, not, not you as a podcast host, but many other podcast hosts who don't do a reliable job of telling an evidence-based story about whatever that issue is. At the same time, you have lobbyists and special interests who have their own reasons for advocating or not advocating for certain policies. And as a former staffer, I sat on the other side of them and they would often be super funny. Uh, they told great stories sometimes because back when I worked in Congress, they could leave us gifts. So they'd always buy us meals and give us textbooks. And they sounded very official, but they usually were telling us a bunch of pseudoscience that I could kind of glean from that because I had a scientific background, but most staffers don't. Um, we also, as people, use heuristics. So we use the quickest, most available, um, most relatable way of interpreting the information we have, which is never complete, to make decisions. Um, so it's this, it's this big and perfect system, and that doesn't even touch on all the misinformation. I mean, something that really frustrates me in the climate conversation, but much more broadly in the COVID conversation, um, all these different things, is that you have people who are becoming activists, and I think activism is good, but informed activism is a lot better. Uh, so when it comes to climate change, for example, you have a lot of people making a lot of noise, really drumming up alarmism, some for some valid reasons, some for reasons that they don't really understand. And it makes us feel anxious. It makes us feel doomed. It doesn't give us the incentive to move toward concrete actions that are going to make a difference. Uh, and so I get frustrated that, yes, I agree that we need to do something with a lot of these folks. And these are the people saying on, on both sides of the aisle, they, they say the most outrageous things. They get the biggest followings. They demand action towards something, but it's not based on what we know. It's based on something that they read a week ago and are suddenly now in this conversation. But they get the biggest they, they, they build the big platform. They get the biggest say. Uh, and more people follow along. And I, and I feel like I'm getting in the weeds here, but all of these factors make it really difficult, I think, even with the best intentions, to get the most accurate, reliable information out in a way that people understand. You know, we we see that all the time, too. I, I, I can't tell you how many groups have come to me saying, I want to work on how to get food that's wasted in restaurants to people that need it. And it's like, okay, so how much food do you think there is? And the answer is, well, lots. I was at a restaurant yesterday and I saw a bunch of food get thrown away. And it's like, so if you had that food, that would be really good for you. And it's like, okay, so you take your experience at face value and say everything that you experienced is true. But if you really want to think about a solution to food waste from restaurants, you've got to take a much further step back and look at that whole system and say, what's motivating that excess food? What are the business realities that make restaurants? Restaurants don't want to waste food. It's the last thing they want to do, right? So why would they choose to do it? Obviously, there's reasons why that's happening that you've got to be able to comprehend. Then you've got to look at the food safety issues that it really takes if you want to rescue that food. And then you have to look at the distribution capacity that would take to pick it up drop it off safely and continue to store it safely until it can be consumed. And lastly, you have to ask yourself, is this the food that people want and need? That's the process, right? So you, while it's simple to say, 
I want to work on this issue to save the food that's going to waste from restaurants. The fact is, it's a lot more complicated than what it looks like at face value. Now, I spelled that out on purpose because I think the same truth is for climate change, right? That you can't take your simple idea and say, well, it was cold this winter, so I don't believe in climate change. Well, everything that you experienced is true. It was cold. Right there. And, and maybe it was even a colder than average winter. But nonetheless, you have to you have to take a step back from your own experience and say, what is all of the information that we have that can help us understand the scope of the problem, the cost to fix it? What are motivating the things that create a, a, a unpalatable climate for all of us in the world? How are people making decisions around all of that? You've got to look at all of that before you can come up with a comprehensive solution. That's Jerry Brisson, Cheryl Kirschenbaum, I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we're all three back with you in just one moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We're back, as promised. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with our guest, Cheryl Kirschenbaum, who is uh, going to dive right in here, Cheryl, to food waste, because I know that's a huge passion for you. It is food waste. It's not the sexiest topic, but it should be. And I love that Jerry brought it up, because you've had me on before, and I just can't stop talking about it. But I think more broadly, you know, Jerry was talking about how complex this stuff is and how if you just look on the surface, you don't see all the details. And, and that's true on so many levels. So when we talk about climate solutions and food waste is a, a big one, it's my favorite one, actually. And I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. When you talk about climate change and someone's a, a new a new kind of activist in that space, they're like, OK, I, I so often hear, oh, let's just build turbines and solar and we're done. Just we need all the renewables in the world. And that sounds great. But then you start talking about the details and you're like, OK, um, let's talk about transmission lines. Let's talk about infrastructure. Uh, let's talk about what it would take to produce that, what the emissions would be, how we produce electricity, because electricity can be very fossil fuel intensive. No one wants to talk about the details because it sounds a lot more boring to a lot of people. They just they don't want to know. They think it's just a matter of, all right, let's let's lease the farmland. Let's get those those new installations up and problem solved. And it just doesn't work that way. And so when you were talking about all the layers and food waste, which, again, is one of my favorite topics, it's like it doesn't make the headlines it should. And instead, we're like all still looking and reading newspaper articles about how we're waiting for nuclear fusion, which would be great. But we're just not there yet. So let's talk about some real things that we can do right now. Uh, now, you know, building infrastructure, not as exciting, but but a really big one. But of course, food waste, food waste wastes a tremendous amount of water and energy, produces a ton of emissions. And then on top of that, we have a whole bunch of people, as you know, in your expertise, going without enough to eat. So there are, if done right, if done well, if the right policy levers move in directions that make sense, there are some common solutions there that can address food insecurity and climate and be good for everyone. Like, there's no downside whatsoever. We waste less, we're more efficient, we're more sustainable and resilient, and more people get to eat and not have to go hungry. So I just think 
making those connections is, is just so tremendously important. And I'm glad you gave me a chance to do that. It is so important. I mean, um, you know, you guys having this back and forth dialogue, it focuses now on food waste, but you know, just generally speaking, um, when we have quick reactions to, to events, uh, that does not make the best prescription for p good policy. And really what we're talking about here is good, is creating good policy and incentivizing people and businesses to make this move. So Cheryl, I, I want us to, with the time we have left with you, I want us, one of the things I want to cover with you, and I, I hope you can enlighten us is what are some of the things that that generally as a nation and those of us individually can do to address both climate change and food waste and all these issues that we're talking about today? I'll tell you a few of my favorites. Some I've okay. already touched on, but of course, you know, first it, it's not a specific uh, ask. It's just something that I think could enlighten all of us. If we just learn a little bit more about agriculture and where our food comes from, we can make smarter choices. A lot of us are going around hearing celebrities and other talking heads give advice on what's healthy, what's not healthy, uh, you know, what makes sense at the farm, what technologies we should and shouldn't use. That's not often based on much. Uh, I, I'm not talking about the doing your own research on the internet kind of thing, but <laughs> looking at the resources available to you, whether it's your nearest university, whether it's, you know, some really solid books at the public library, whatever it is, learning, visiting a farm. I think very few of us have ever visited a farm, let alone a slaughterhouse, but, but understanding what those processes are, who the people are that are responsible for making sure that we have enough to eat, uh, getting to know them. So then your perspective changes a little bit because it's, it's the people involved. Um, it's the processes involved. It's not just the stuff under the saran wrap at the supermarket. I think that would help a lot of us and also make clearer how some of these interactions between climate and, and food security like interplay. Um, of course, being more aware of food waste, not necessarily immediately calling representative and saying waste less food, but kind of thinking about where you fit in that process, what you can do as an individual, um, maybe it's talking, talking to farmers, figuring out how they address food waste, helping support some of their initiatives uh, to do better. There are some great programs even around where I live in Lansing that, uh, that pick up extra food and distribute it. So supporting the infrastructure already there, not necessarily needing to recreate the wheel in some cases, is mm -hmm. useful. Um, understanding the technologies that are helping us to address food and climate change uh, there's a huge pushback among people who are very worried about genetically modified foods. Some of it is valid because we hear about some very large corporations uh, that are have been bad actors, but not because of the technology itself. There's people out there creating rice that can survive flooding, uh, creating crops more tolerant to, to drought. Some of it's just through traditional breeding. Um, we can't be afraid of this if we're going to live in a world where it's more necessary than it's ever been before. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of other things I can throw out there, but those are some of the first things I think of. 
Cheryl, do you have a website or some place that people could go if they were interested in, in, even if they wanted to go to the library, what book should they look for? Is there any place people can go to just kind of even get a, a set of references that would be helpful for them? The first thing I think of actually is utilizing, I mean, here in Michigan, we have a great extension. Uh, talking to some of the folks at the Michigan State University Extension, a lot of them are working on farms. A lot of them are very eager to tell stories. When I'm working with my own PBS team and I don't know, it's not like we did an episode on pickling, not climate change, but we did an episode on pickling. I didn't know a whole lot about pickling. I found the pickling people and uh, got a whole bunch of interesting information right from the source. So I think utilizing um, materials like that, but when it comes to when it comes to food itself, I mean, there's a whole bunch of authors that I might recommend, uh, but I feel like that would be too in the weeds for this podcast. Um, I like some of Michael Pollan's work. I love Pamela Ronald. She has a great book called Tomorrow's Table about where food is headed and how it fits in with food security. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe, is a, um, she's a scientist and evangelical, actually, who's at Texas Tech. She writes a lot about climate and food is part of that. Michael Weber has a new book coming out that's going to be about energy and food. Energy and food are inherently related. That's another thing I should mention. So if we think about energy with climate change, food is part of that. It takes so much energy to move all that food, to tra transport it, refrigerate it, store it, prepare it, all these things, which is another reason why wasting food is such a big problem. So, yeah, there's, there's so much to this conversation, but there are some people doing wonderful work. They're not always the people who are in the media, in the news, because they're kind of working in their own space. But it's out there and it's just a question of um, finding, well, I hate to say finding it because that again goes back to the do your own research thing. Um, but there are just some wonderful people. But again, start with Extension. They're a great resource and they're available and they're always happy to talk to everyone. So when we publish this podcast, let's make sure we put out there some of these authors just that people can look so that you can always look up our podcast, uh, Food First Michigan. And uh, and and, you know, we'll have some some of those resources there so that as as you're hearing this, if you're interested in exploring some of these authors or some of these sources, we'll make sure that's out there for you. Uh, one of the other spaces that I see so much opportunity is the shift toward more plant based alternatives. And I think there's an immediate pushback for from a lot of reasons. Some people are uncomfortable with with so-called meat that doesn't come from an animal. But there's a lot of concern as well for what happens to the farmers. And I think it's also worth pointing out that there's so many emerging opportunities for farmers as well. Right now, these companies that are looking to create more plant-based alternatives, they're importing all of these crops like peas and beans from overseas because our farmers aren't growing them because we monocrop here, which has been really bad for small farms, really bad for families that depend on farming. So we can bring in a lot more variety to what we do here that supports a more climate friendly future without scaling. Like we're still going to eat meat. I would never tell people to go vegan and stop eating meat. I eat meat myself. But there's a lot of things that are coming down the pipeline and already here that are real opportunities for people in these spaces looking to grow rather than feeling like they're going to be shrunk and, uh, you know, forced out of the system. Well, we're going to have you back for sure, and it won't be so long this time. Um, so thank you for taking the time to be with Jerry and me today. Thank you for all that you shared. And you can find Cheryl on Twitter, and you can find her at her website, which is CherylKirschenbaum.com. Cheryl, thanks for being here. Thank you. Jerry and I are back in just a moment to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan.
back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. Jerry, that was our guest, Cheryl Kirschenbaum, who is a wealth of knowledge about so many things that impact our work. Yeah, I'm glad we gave her as much time as we practically could and still do the show. She is so good. She's so exciting. She's so smart. And uh, and it, it just reinforces so much of what we do in our work to try to get the right conversation and the right policies around how do we address food insecurity. And, and it's so important from so many angles. I just can't say enough about how, how great a show that, that was. I, I really appreciate how practical, I said it on the show, how practical and how candid, but also how positive she is. It's not too late for either climate issues, and certainly it's not too late for food insecurity. And it's a, a thing that you started on this show that said, you can't solve a problem if you don't believe it can be solved. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and it can be solved, and it can be solved with the right perspective. You know, we can stop arguing and start solving. I mean, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's do it. <laughs> I like it. Stop, stop arguing and start solving. That'll be a new mantra for us. <laughs> Jerry, time for a little food for thought. The mission of the Food Bank Council is to create a food-secure Michigan, a place where children, seniors, and everyone in between are free from the toxic stress of hunger. A place where hunger comes off the table and is replaced by access to nutritious food that leads them to healthy lives. A seemingly impossible task, but consider once again the words of St. Francis. Start by doing what is necessary, then what is possible, and soon you will be doing the impossible. And for that, we believe that hunger is not bigger than we are, it is not better than we are, and it is not beyond us to solve. And we solve it by putting and keeping food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.